News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about a new investigative piece that you can find at globalnews.ca. I was reading the first part of it yesterday. It's fascinating. It takes a deep dive into how some Canadian doctors are spreading misinformation across the country and undermining the fight against COVID-19. We wanted to learn more about the research that went into this. So joining us now is Ashley Stewart, who's our global national enterprise reporter and who wrote this piece. Ashley, thank you for being with us. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Thank you. Listen, your, your piece is fascinating here. Where did you even start to look at something like this? Honestly, I feel like this has been going on for such a long time, but no one has really addressed it. I think a lot of people are, are kind of worried about giving people spreading misinformation and things like that a platform. But these people already have a platform, so I think we just kind of have to be tackling it head on at this point. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 everywhere. It's on Telegram, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram. It's just a case of pulling it all together. Right. And we're talking about doctors here, right, who are seeing patients in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, they all have active licenses. All of these doctors are still practicing. Some have suspended licenses or restrictions on them, but that's only be- that's only in Ontario or the rest of the country. They can continue to practice while being investigated for spreading misinformation or issuing false um, vaccine exemptions and things like that. So, yeah, these are people who are in the community and who everyday Canadians would look to as kind of experts in their field. Yeah, tell me about some of the cases that you came across. So I have found that they're mostly they're mostly situated in BC and Ontario. Um, there's a case, a really interesting case in Ontario of four doctors, three of whom have been um, accused by the college of, of issuing fake vaccine exemptions. And they've all spoken very publicly about um, being against the COVID-19 vaccine and, and spreading misinformation around uh, blood clots and myocarditis and things like that that are directly at odds with what Health Canada um, is, is telling everyone and what the what medical research has shown. So these people are kind of trying to persuade vaccine hesitant people, um, other people who might not necessarily be have gotten their vaccine yet to kind of to not get it. There are even people that are kind of saying vaccines kill children and things like that. That is just directly not true. So then what kind of consequences are there? Like, what are authorities doing about doctors who are out there saying all this and doing all this? Unfortunately, this is kind of, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, this is kind of part of the problem is that the colleges um, are there to kind of police this behavior, but their investigations can take 10 months, over a year, two years to kind of um, figure out if there's any wrongdoing. That whole time, doctors can continue to practice and, and, and share this, this information. Only after the, the course of an investigation can, can these people be kind of disciplined or, or have their license revoked or suspended or restricted. So it really is a case of what is being done and what more can be done. So what more can be done? That is the golden question at the moment. Right. It seems like a, a lot of the colleges are just kind of saying this isn't necessarily our problem, like we didn't sign up for this. Um, the ministries of health are kind of bucking responsibility as well. Um, so 
honestly, it it it's a bit of a wild west at the moment, I guess, because this is this. I mean, vaccine hesitancy is not new, but the rate that it's being shared on social media and things like that is new. So this is kind of a new phenomenon that I just feel like no one's quite figured out how to deal with yet. So, and every province seems to have this problem, right? Because I know, Ashley, in particular, you wrote about, I mean, I know in BC, it, you found a couple doctors and in Ontario. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's a few in BC as well. The BC um, college in particular does seem to be kind of, um, I mean, it's hard to tell because they're obviously very, uh, there are privacy concerns about them speaking about things and stuff as well. But the, the the people in BC, I mean, there's a group of doctors that are touring the countryside right now as part of a, a thing they're calling Doctors on Tour, where they're literally going around to um, townships. There was one in Kelowna, there's one in um, Victoria, and telling people to act as missionaries for, for these views. And they're, they're, they're spreading misinformation and saying things like vaccines are lethal, vaccines kill children, and this this often crazy rhetoric that people are then going out and, and sharing with other people. And I think this this kind of disinformation just gets mixed in with, with verified health advice and no one knows what's real anymore, which yeah. is really making it quite difficult for for authorities to kind of get, get this under control, you know? Right. And you were, I know you kind of fell down that rabbit hole too on the internet of, of trying to find out who is behind saying some of this stuff on the internet as well. And and in, in part of the piece, did I also see that you got a vaccine exemption somehow? Yeah, exactly. So there's a there's a website that's based in BC that's issuing vaccine exemptions for a fee. Um, and when you t- when you actually see this thing, it's kind of like it's incredible that anyone is taking this and believing that it's a true verified vaccine exemption. It's kind of drawn up in this array of fonts and colors and just gives a random list of medical exemptions that this person should be excluded from the vaccine for an array of things that it might include, like migraines and claustrophobia and things like that. So there are some really outlandish things that are going on. But I mean, these kind of this website really claims that it's it's working. And, and one of the uh, archives pages shows that 500 people were currently in the queue. So these things are being used. Okay, so where do we go from here? Then, Ashley, you've been writing. Did, did you get? To, I guess I should say, what kind of response did you get to putting this piece out there? I'm sure there was a lot of it. A lot. I mean, this is this is a huge point of contention for people that has, as I was mentioning before, it isn't really being addressed because it's 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 hard to know for people if if we're giving them a platform or not or if we should just be ignoring it. I think ignoring it has not worked so far so I think tackling it head on is where, where we need to go and just debunking these theories as they come along. Um, the the reaction was absolutely insane yesterday. I mean there was a lot of trolling there was a lot of like, bet, yeah. public debate there was a lot of um, really hardcore anti-vaxxers that have just, I mean these people were not going to be able to change their minds anyway but yeah, it, it, it's obvious that this has touched a nerve, and I don't think it's going to be going away. It is not. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about it.
No worries. Thanks for having me. Ashley Stewart is the Global National Enterprise reporter. Check out her piece. It is at globalnews.ca. It's a new investigative piece that dives into Canadian doctors that are spreading misinformation and what is going on with them. Like what kind of consequences are there for doing that? And we're talking in almost every province this is happening. So yes, check it out online, globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Some very welcome news for some BC businesses yesterday with the announcement that we could see a gradual reopening for gyms and fitness centers starting tomorrow. So they have to have, you know, strict COVID-19 safety plans. Uh, They have to, you know, continue on with all the other COVID restrictions and do all that. Also, we learned there's going to be no change for the BC vaccine card program. All of that had been scheduled to be kind of reviewed at the end of January. And as we get to that point, it's clear that we are not quite ready to do away with these things yet. What it also means is that businesses need help. We're going to talk more about that now with the help of Todd Stone, BC Liberal MLA and official opposition critic for jobs, economic recovery and innovation. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. I hope you're well this morning. I am. Thank you. And thank you for asking. Uh, Let's talk about business support right now. Are we doing enough, do you think, provincially to support businesses? Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, look, uh, the, the latest uh, COVID uh, relief grant, uh, the, the closure relief grant, which the government announced last December, uh, over a month ago now, uh, not a single business has actually received a penny of, of uh, support yet from that program. And that was uh, to carry uh, businesses uh, closed through the latest health measures through to uh, basically yesterday. Uh, and uh, we, we, we know that 35% of small businesses in BC uh, are losing money every single day. Um, so we, we need th- that money to get pushed out the door. We'd like to see the government broaden uh, the scope of that program and, and increase the eligibility of it as well to, uh, to, to capture thousands of other businesses that have been impacted uh, by, these, by these health, businesses, uh, health uh, measures, uh, largely through dramatic uh, drops in their, in their revenue. So how do we how do we do that then? How do we balance that? Because it feels like so much of this is changing every day. It's hard, I would imagine, for the supports to keep up. Well, look, uh, the other provinces have managed to uh, to do a much better job at this uh, in terms of pushing supports out quickly. Uh, Ontario took uh, a program that they had developed last year, and uh, they they simply uh, repurposed it, uh, put uh, put put new 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 money into it. Uh, they knew who the, the struggling small businesses were because these were largely the same organizations that had been hit hard last year, uh, and they were able to push money out in a, in a matter of days, uh, not uh, not months. The, the BC government should have taken the circuit breaker uh, program, the circuit breaker grant program, which was launched last year, and and done the same thing. Just put uh, put the ten million or or whatever the amount of, of funding is into that program. They know who the businesses are and push push the uh, the supports out. Simi, I, I talked to a business yesterday here in Kamloops that uh, applied for and and um, was uh, was approved for funding uh, under uh, a, the small and medium-sized enter- uh, business program uh, that the BC government put out a year ago. They just received the cash in their bank account yesterday. Uh, so th- that's, not, that, that's not good enough when you have uh, this many businesses that have been playing by all the rules, doing all the right things to comply, to keep their patrons and their employees safe. Uh, they deserve much yeah. better uh, than that from uh, from the BC government. What are you hearing from business owners? Well, I, you know, a mix of 
of, of frustration and, and desperation, frankly. I mean, uh, even how the B.C. government uh, uh, announced the extension of the latest health measures, uh, you know, as you know well, it was actually Richard Zussman who, who uh, uh, broke it on Twitter that uh, the B.C. government on Monday night had posted, uh, had, had revised the health orders, extending them uh, indefinitely. Uh, instead of holding a press conference and just being you know, totally transparent and upfront and, and, and giving business owners, uh, you know, the, the the benefit of the doubt and the, and, and the opportunity to prepare, um, they just extend the orders in the in the darkness of night uh, on Monday night and and then on Tuesday they announce that they're they're extending the uh, the measures. Uh, so so people are frustrated again because I think small business owners uh, recognize that uh, it's been a tough time for everyone, but they've they've stepped up and and despite dramatic. Uh, de- declines in their revenue they've uh, they've they've tried to do everything right and, and so they deserve uh, they deserve better than what they've got and and a lot of these businesses um, that are impacted aren't even covered by the latest grants if you're in the live event sector uh, if you're a travel agent, if you're an event planner, um, you might not be closed technically, but your revenue is down 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 percent. Uh, and, and again, you're barely hanging on. Yeah. And on that front, like I know that BC's job situation has been like holding steady, but there haven't been any huge gains or anything like that. Where do we need to improve that? What needs to be done? Well, and, and let's be clear on the on the jobs front. Uh, the government uh, tells a, a, a tale uh, that sounds pretty good, but when you actually drill down into the facts, you, you look at the latest stats, can labor force uh, numbers for the month of December, and, and British Columbia lost twenty thousand private sector jobs. Uh, the uh, uh, there's sixty one thousand fewer uh, self employed uh, small business people uh, than there was two two years ago, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, 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 hidden in all of those numbers are are a lot of people's livelihoods, a lot of small businesses that uh, that haven't made it, to, that that have closed, and others that are that are hanging on by a thread. Uh, what, what, what do we have to do? Really quickly, number one, we've got to we've got to get money out the door in this in this latest grant program. We need to put more money in there and expand the eligibility so that those other types of businesses that have been impacted um, get 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 some support as well. And last but not least, let's not add additional net new costs onto the backs of small business. And and I point to the uh, employer paid sick day uh, program, which we all support. We all we all get that uh, it, it, we don't want in, uh, people to have to make that choice of going into work sick or or staying at home and not getting paid but the premier and, and this government promised that the sick pay program uh, would not be hoisted onto the shoulders of small business during the pandemic uh, so all those businesses out there that are barely hanging on because of their revenue being hammered uh, are now s- subject to uh, to sick pay uh, employer paid sick pay uh, costs uh, when the government said that they would uh, help businesses out on that front so i think those three things uh, would go a long ways to to helping a lot of small businesses here and now survive so that they're still standing uh, in the months ahead. Yeah, do you think we're going to see some difficult times for businesses ahead then? Uh, we certainly are, and and uh, we we all know businesses in our in our local communities that that uh, have already closed, whether they be restaurants or retail stores, uh, folks in the live event sector, uh, again travel agents, event planners. There's a, there's a there's a lot of pain out there. Um, you know, the government talks about this this incredible jobs record that they have. Uh, they, they've actually, on one front, they, they've increased the size of government by a hundred thousand uh, positions over the last four years. So if you're in the public sector, you're doing well. Uh, but without a, a focused uh, uh, private sector-led jobs plan that, that you know sets targets for, for for each different sector and and aligns 
government uh, uh, initiatives and actions uh, with with those targets, uh, we're not going to see a, a, a you know the, the kind of sustainable long term economic growth with good paying uh, family supporting private sector jobs in this province. Um, so it's time for the government to wake up and but, uh, and support small business. But isn't the problem right now also? finding people for these jobs? Like, it's not a matter of finding good-paying jobs. There's a lot of good-paying jobs out there. There's not enough people to fill those good-paying jobs. Uh, that is a very fair comment, and that's absolutely uh, uh, one, of, one of the struggles that many businesses of all sizes are, are facing. And uh, uh, again, we've been calling on the BC government to put a, 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 a plan on the table that uh, that uh, focuses on working with small, medium-sized business to attract uh, the talent they need to train, to retrain train uh the 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 government uh, you know the the government strategy is little bits and pieces all over the place uh but no coordinated uh plan on the on that front either uh and and so you know when you add all of these uh, these up labor shortages uh new new taxes and costs like the sick pay program on on onto the shoulders of small business coupled with huge drops in their revenue again you can understand why uh why so many of them are are barely hanging on and, and are mystified as to as to why this government uh, continues to to take so long to get supports out the door and and seems to be uh, you know the the no- notification of changes uh, seems to be an afterthought when it comes to small businesses uh, that's got to change. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that today. Thank you. Have a great day, Simi. You too. Todd Stone, BC Liberal MLA, official opposition critic for jobs, economic recovery and innovation. We can talk about the labor shortage and all the challenges there too. But the comment about the money taking too long to come out of the grants program and to get to the businesses, I mean, that is absolutely fair comment because I've heard that. That has been a complaint that businesses have had. That's a previous jobs program had the same problem. So I would like to hear from businesses out there if they have had this challenge. Do you not meet the criteria or has it been slow to kind of figure out because they love the announcements about the supports. But do you qualify as a business for the programs that the government has put out there? This is Mornings with Simi. So this didn't take long. The provincial government just recently decided that it was okay to charge for freedom of information requests despite a lot of opposition to this. And now it looks like the city of Surrey might be following suit. For more on this, we're joined now by Brenda Locke, Surrey City Councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. So what is being considered by council at this point? Well, uh, they're considering putting in a $10 fee for all new FOI requests. Um, there are some minor uh, exceptions to that, but um, yeah, they're, they're looking at putting in a fee for, for that service. Okay, so is this in, in the process of being voted on? Like, where is it in the process? Uh, no, it was voted on. It uh, passed on Monday night, and uh, it is now going to be uh, considered and put into a bylaw for Surrey. Now, I know you did not vote for this. Why not? Well, I just, uh, first of all, I think it's terribly discriminatory. We have seen, there is no question about it, a steady increase in the number of FOI requests in Surrey. But there's a very good reason for that. We've got a mayor who has banned the public. They've cut people off. Um, The public needs to know. They want to know the answers. They want to know where their tax dollars are going they want to know about projects in the city, and I think they have a right to that. And so, how do you? What do you think this ten dollars fee is going to do? Well, they claim it's um, an administrative deterrent, which in itself is uh, 
concerning to me. Not everyone, uh, I, not everyone wants to pay ten dollars. They certainly don't want to give over their visa numbers over the phone or however they have to apply. Um, it's just really quite ridiculous. What was the discussion like for this? Now, I know this is widely opposed. I think it's a bad idea. I know lots of people think it is. But what is the justification that you heard for doing this? Well, the the only justification that I really heard from uh, members of our council, uh, the mayor's team particularly, was that... Um, they wanted to. They wanted it as a deterrent that there has been too many FOI requests to the city, and I think the real question is why? Why do they think they've had so many FOI requests in the city of Surrey? And I can tell you, it's because people are not getting the information they need. Simi, I myself, as a city councillor in Surrey, have had to do an FOI request to get information. That's how sealed up Surrey is. Okay, I think a lot of people, Councillor Locke, would be surprised to hear that. Like, why can't you as a councillor ask staff a question and get an answer? I can ask the question. It's about getting the answer. And uh, and I should be able to get the answer. And I have had myself to do an FOI request. And, of course, it's with our, our uh, infamous um, police transition information because... Uh, everything is held very tightly in the mayor's office in Surrey, and the public need the information. They want the information. We are seeing our taxes going up incredibly. We see this uh, transition that people believe is a runaway train. I agree with that. And so um, people want information, and that's the only way to get it in Surrey. So now you will have to pay this $10 fee if you want to get information as a councillor? You know, that's going to be really fun to find out, won't it? Because uh, maybe I'll just get them to deduct it from my uh, check. I don't know. But I suppose so. I will have to pay the $10 as well. Oh, boy. Interesting times in Surrey. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Brenda Locke, Surrey City Councillor, talking about the fact that Surrey City Hall charging $10 non-refundable application fee for freedom of information requests. That has now been voted on. Uh, Councillors Brenda Locke and Linda Annis both opposed that. Uh, but here it is. It is now in and, yeah, not very happy about it. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as of about seven hours ago, the Coquihalla Highway, Highway 5, has reopened to regular vehicle traffic. This is between Hope and Merritt. Now, it is reduced speeds in a lot of those areas. You do have to be careful as you're driving. But boy, that planned reopening to the general public was much earlier than we had originally expected. Remember, when this first happened and we got a look at the devastation there, we'd heard that, oh, it could be spring even later before the Coquihalla reopened. However, the Transportation Minister, Rob Fleming, is also reminding drivers that the highway isn't exactly back to the way it was before. Drivers must be aware that this is not the Coquihalla as we know it. Uh, there are some changes. Electrical, electric vehicle charging stations remain out of service due to damage from the storms, and some rest areas are closed. Uh, some sections of the Coquihalla are two-lane traffic only with one lane in each direction, and multiple speed reductions are in place. For everyone's safety, it's imperative that all motorists obey the posted speed limits and do not pass 
in these sections. All right, that's Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. We know that more than 100 kilometres of a central roadway was destroyed when it was closed to regular vehicle traffic. That was back on November 14th. And here we are, a little more than two months later. Road crews worked around the clock to get things going. Uh, we've got some temporary repairs in place, but we wanted to find out really what it's taken to get to this point. Joining us now is Kelly Scott, President of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Kelly, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. How have you been doing? I'll bet you've just been working flat out. Well, uh, I haven't, but our contractors and the women and men they have uh, working for them have been uh, 24-7 since uh, November 14th and uh, and showing the results of uh, uh, the dedicated workforce and, and clearly um, uh, a terrific leadership from Ministry of Transportation as to where are the priorities and what, what do we need to do to get uh, BC back on its feet. Yeah, how did we do this? How, how did this happen to get it done so quickly? Well, like any time uh, you get something like this happening, it's uh, you need strong leadership, and and we're we're very fortunate with this province, with Ministry of Transportation taking a hold of this, and and then you've got your contracting uh, community, the BC Road Builders uh, and their highway maintenance contractors were all around, all available, and. We had over a hundred contractors reach out with uh, equipment and operators, and and really the the question was, what can we do to help? Uh, when we had that force behind us, and then the plans put in place with the ministry and the engineering community, it allowed them to start attacking uh, the coke and start re rebuilding it, uh, repairing it rather, uh, so they can make it passable and and open it up for that the commercial truck traffic to come down from the interior. Now I know when last time we talked to you, you were telling us about the process and trying to figure out what the hardest hit areas have been. So did how how is that going to work then? How back to normal is the Coca-Cola right now? Oh, we're not going to see the, the Coke we remember six months ago for a while. Um, this is a, a temporary solution. Uh, there are permanent solutions coming. Uh, ministry will be going out uh, with projects to to fix it more per, uh, on a more permanent basis. But uh, this is a passable road. Uh, commercial truck traffic's been coming down since December 20th. They've been working, uh, using it rather. Now it's going to be open to passenger traffic, but it will be limited in areas, speed, will have to be looked at and you know we're going through the teeth of of winter right now and this is a winter we haven't seen for a while so anybody traveling that road uh, as the truck drivers all know need to drive to the conditions now when you say it's a passable road like what's changed there kelly is is the route still the same are we going to have to rethink where some of these roads go it's a similar pattern to what we had there isn't any major realignment of the roads uh, the the original engineering done 30 odd years ago clearly charted the path through the valleys there. Uh, there are some sections there that the ministry is looking at that were hit um, uh, full force by the um, the atmospheric uh, river we had come at us. That we'll have to take some rethinking as to how do we rebuild better so that next time this happens, uh, it won't take the full force or the impact of a slide coming down. But they're looking at that now, and they'll be looking at, you know, are there other areas that we have to look at as well that we're not impacted by the, the slides? And can we rearmor those, or how do we make sure that uh, we build back better as we go forward? Right, so is that going to be the focus now in the next few months, is that these crews aren't just going to go back to doing what they were doing before, there's still work to be done. 
Oh, no question. There's, there's, there is work to be done up and down. All of our highway structure uh, needs to be looked at, and and certainly the number one, the number eight, and and uh, and number five, of course, are the priorities. But I think for for uh, all of us, and certainly the government and and the contracting community, this a bit of a not a wake up call, but climate change is here, and we need to assess not just those major arteries, but every highway throughout the province uh, needs to be looked at now. Uh, in in light of what we've just experienced and, and what we're going through even today. Does that change, Kelly, how we approach road construction and even road repair? I think it, it, it's something that's been going on for a while, Simi. Um, the climate change has been in the vocabulary of the Ministry of Transportation for about 15 years now. And engineering to climate change has been something they talk about constantly. And I think if we go back and look at how they engineered the Sea the Sky Highway, um, as you recall, as I recall, driving up to Worcester, you were always getting a washout uh, yeah. three, four times a year. We're not seeing that now. And, and if one goes up and down the Sea of the Sky, you'll see that there was a real lot of thought gone into how do we engineer for those catastrophes so that the infrastructure doesn't take the brunt of the hit and it's moved elsewhere. Uh, and that's, you know, you go back, uh, I don't recall when the Sea of the Sky has been shut down of late due to a significant uh, storm. So I think we'll be seeing that uh, a lot more. And that's nothing new to British Columbia. Uh, Ministry of Transportation, of course, and the road building community led the charge on the Sea of the Sky and and built it and built it back better than what was there. And, and for sure, we'll see that on the Coke, uh, the number one as well. So we'll see some improvements. Uh, what we'll see as a, as a public driving, we'll see uh, back to what the Coke used to be. Uh, those that like to stop and look at what engineering has gone into and what the road building crews are going to be doing, we'll see some significant changes in, in, in the armoring of it and just, uh, you know, realignment possibly, but also just the uh, engineering that may not be visible to us, right. but the, the engineers will have done. Well, Kelly, so looking at this now, we know it's open as of this morning, but getting it back to like 100% back to normal, how much longer do you think that's going to take? What is our timeline? Well, that's a good question. Ministry's gone out uh, to look for contractors who are qualified to work uh, on these projects. Uh, They've got a list of, oh, 30, 40 contractors right now, and they are now defining what projects need to be done. And this will be the more permanent fixes, if you will. And that will be, uh, and ministry wants to move quickly. Minister Fleming is talking about getting something uh, when our construction season starts here shortly. So uh, the engineering uh, departments are looking at what do we need to do and how do we need to do it. And those projects will then be put out to the contracting community to to bid on and then start work uh, ASAP. All right. We'll be talking to you again. Kelly, thank you. You bet. Thanks, Jimmy. Kelly Scott, president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. They have been working 24-7. All those, what did he say, 100 different crews that are there uh, making sure that the roads are getting back up and running. Coquihalla open this morning. Not as you would remember the Coquihalla. It's open to regular vehicle traffic, but it won't be like it was before. You certainly can't go as fast as you were going before, but it's open amazing when you consider it was two months ago, November 14th, that it was closed to regular vehicle traffic. We still have a ways to go, but making huge progress. And that is a credit to all the crews out there that have been working so hard to get it back up and running. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, approval ratings for premiers across the country have been well, kind of like a roller coaster during the pandemic. Well, for some premiers, maybe not necessarily here in BC. For the latest survey on that, joining us now is Shachi Curl, who's president of Angus Reid. Their latest survey took a look at premiers' performances across the country and their approval ratings. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning to me. Okay, so clearly some have had a rougher ride than others, wouldn't you say? Uh, definitely, that is the case. And some, particularly heading into an election year, a la the Premier of Ontario, uh, is facing uh, a more challenging uphill climb than, than, say, some of the others that you mentioned. Okay, so talking about here in BC, would you say it's been steady through the pandemic? You know, uh, all almost all of the premiers at the beginning of the pandemic saw a stratospheric jump in their personal approval uh, for through those first three months, few months. So think about um, spring of 2020. Think about those first months where we were all trying to figure out what was going on. And our provincial leaders were out there every day giving news conferences, talking about how there was a plan, and the plan was going to work. And we all said, yes, 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 this is, this is really good information. We saw approval levels for people like John Horgan and, and other premiers as high as 70% at that time. Uh, today, two years later, Horgan's approval is still above 50%. And if you're a politician, you will take that to the bank. Uh, it's at 54%, but it does represent a very steady trend downward. Still, he's in much better shape than a lot of other premiers. Okay, so yeah, let's break that down then. So 54% looks good at this point. Who is not looking good? Well, next door in Alberta, Jason Kenney's uh, approval is sitting at 26%. So, you know, about half where John Morgan is. Yes, not very good. In Manitoba, there's there's one premier who's, who's doing even worse, uh, Adam Stephenson, at 21%. Uh, what's really interesting, Simi, is uh, why people are dissatisfied about the things they're dissatisfied about. You have, for example, in, on, in uh, Ontario and Alberta, two provinces that are handing out rapid tests uh, to their populations, saying they're not happy about the way the, their provincial governments respectively have handled rapid test distribution. In BC, the answer is also one of frustration around handing out rapid tests. However, we don't really have rapid tests to be handed out. So, you know, people get upset less about the things that are happening on the ground. I think it's more about the management of expectations, because even in places where uh, a situation is objectively different or maybe even uh, better or less worse than it is in other places, that right. is not necessarily a guarantee of satisfaction. Yeah. Is there a way to turn things around then? So if the decision making was bad on a couple of issues that resulted in them taking a hit, can a premier in a province turn things around by then suddenly appearing to be more decisive? Well, we have definitely seen uh, premiers climb their way back from pretty dismal numbers in a clutch. So uh, we've we've seen premiers, uh, you know, win re-election with quite dismal uh, approval numbers, and people say we didn't see that coming. Always rem- remember that um, approval is not always 
uh, a, a perfect guarantee of an election outcome. You might not like your provincial leader, but you might still vote for the party they represent. And so that's something to bear in mind as we look at elections in Ontario and Quebec this year, uh, two provinces that, that represent a good chunk of the Canadian population. In B.C., I think you're also seeing a little bit of waning dissatisfaction or, or a little bit of uh, people in this province uh, starting to tune out not only to what their uh, provincial politicians are saying, but also to what public health officials are saying, in part just because of fatigue, Jimmy. People I would imagine, are worn yeah. out, yeah. We're all, I think we all feel a little bit of that too. But the Manitoba results are interesting too, though, because that's a brand new premier and usually new premiers see a bit of a bounce, don't they? Yeah, there's always a bit of a, of a honeymoon period coming in. Uh, that is not the case for this new Manitoba premier. Although um, sometimes that if, uh, if they've had a, a rough uh, stumble out of the gates, or if the premier that they're replacing uh, is someone who is seen to be close to the incoming uh, leader, that that will certainly uh, dampen right. uh, the the opportunity for them to, to put their own mark on things, so to speak. So sometimes there's just no climbing out of it. I mean, we've seen that in BC before too, right? Where it's well, kind of like you just changed your horse, but it's everything else is the same. That's absolutely true. Um, you can you can try and uh, bounce back or or, or rebound. Uh, we have seen uh, trend lines that down uh, that that go down and down and down until they sort of flatline, and the politician's career has flatlined. That was certainly. Gordon Campbell, at the end of his political career, uh, we've seen them uh, bounce back, however, as we did with Christy Clark in, in 2013. Yeah. So these things, um, as I say, are an important indicator of where people are at in terms of level of satisfaction with their premier. Obviously, this isn't an election year in British Columbia. So John Horgan not only uh, has the luxury in B.C. of saying, hey, those aren't bad numbers. He also has the luxury to an extent, especially as he's focusing on more important things such as his own personal health, to say, eh, I don't really care what my number is this quarter. But are there trend lines that you think should maybe they should be paying a little attention to? Well, I would say on the health front, uh, on the COVID management front, uh, and certainly on the communication front, because we saw gaps in communication uh, throughout 2021, Simi, whether it was struggling around the heat dome, whether it was struggling at times around communication on on the on the floods that we saw in November and and the disaster on those fronts, I'm not saying those things weren't well managed, but there is a level of expectation around communication that people have, and I think uh, in the time of pandemic, there is a heightened level of expectation around clear, consistent frequent communication and uh, people who are at the podium saying what they're saying, then following through on it. Um, it's, it's challenging when the message changes. It's very confusing for people. Uh, it's challenging when there are things people haven't anticipated because they haven't been told about it. I think we've seen the BC government attempt to recover from that, particularly after the heat dome when it comes to communication. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but as I say, it's something that, that now we're seeing across the board. Uh, people people uh, are worried. People are living now and entering what is going to soon be the third year of this pandemic. And I do yeah. think you're seeing a little bit of, of politicians losing the room, so to speak. A little red flag. All right, Chachi, thank you. Thanks for having me.